0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, They'll Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode.
1: So when we started, there were others that were at 5 million, we were at 10 or 8, and we're at 220 million, and our number two online retailer is 20 million. So I can assure you that that kind of focus and thinking and not worrying about what Amazon is doing or what the others are doing gets you to hear.
0: How did a university dropout come up with the idea of an online platform to sell books and turn it into an extraordinary homegrown Aussie success story? Well, that's exactly what Tony Nash did when he created and built Booktopia. Yet he had no previous experience in publishing, and he admits he wasn't even a book lover. But he did have invaluable experience in the internet in its early commercial days. So Tony Nash convinced himself and his two co-founders there was an opportunity to exploit. But just to set the scene, when Tony and Co decided to plunge into the online book market, It was already dominated not only by the biggest player in online books in the world, but arguably the fiercest competitor on the planet, Amazon. Yet as Tony sees it, Amazon handed them a gift. So how did Tony, his brother, brother brother-in-law, and eventually his sister go from a standing start with Booktopia and build it over the past 15 years into a sustainable e-commerce empire, which listed on the ASX in late 2020, is set to reach just under $220 million in revenue this year? and claims to hold a staggering 25% market share in all online book sales. Well, the secret? Tony Nash says, never obsess about what the competition's doing. I hope you enjoy part one of my chat with Tony Nash. Tony Nash, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks for having me. It really is great to talk to you as a co-founder and really the driving force behind Booktopia, a completely homegrown online retailing book selling business that has really become so successful, even though you are up against one of probably the biggest Company, the biggest online juggernaut in the world, Amazon. Before we talk about that, let's start with the now. Give me a picture of what Booktopia is now in terms of size, market share, number of employees, those sorts of things. Sure. So Booktopia
1: has around 250 employees. Our revenue will be just under $220 million this year. We have 14,000 square meters out near the Olympic Park in Sydney. We have about $10 million of stock, about $26 million of automation, including robots which are just being deployed at the moment. We have a market share of around, depends which way you look at it, but if you were to look at the overall market, it's probably about 8 or 9%, meaning that there's a lot of books that get sold that are not necessarily being tracked by the rest of the industry, books that are being sold direct to the the public via authors and so forth, so about $2.5 billion dollars. Market and you're talking about books
0: in bricks and mortar stores as well. Yeah,
1: include, yeah. all inclusive. I try so the the book scan numbers are about one point two billion, but there's probably double of that that gets sold through the rest of the channels. So
0: globally, you have about nine percent of that.
1: Oh no, Australia, Australia, wide. Okay. Australia wide,
0: and in e-retailing of books, online we're, retailing.
1: Yeah, so we're very small in that area. Amazon, Apple, Google, they are much bigger mm-hmm. than us, but we focus on the physical books. We do have an ebook and an audiobook offering. And it's it's nice, it's but it's small. And ebook sales are actually on the decline. Audiobooks are on the increase, but ebooks are on the
0: decline. And just do you differentiate between books sold just in bricks and mortar stores, David Jones, Dimmix, Big W when it was operating fully, and online selling of books? Yeah, they do
1: carve that out in terms of some of the markets. Of the 2.5 billion, they say books around books sold. Yeah, around 800 million is sold online. So we're we're 25 percent or so of of the online book sales. Amazon would have a lot of the rest, but it's one of those things that's not as easy to track as you would think.
0: No, I'm sure it's not. Now Amazon has to be still the biggest sort of e retailer of books in the world. How did you even think that you could compete against Amazon when you started? There was no thinking, there was no light bulb moment,
1: actually. It was one thing led to another. We, and I say we, because I've been in business with my brother, my sister, my brother-in-law for over 20 years. And when I say we, back in the day when before we started, we were doing internet marketing, getting people to the top of Google. So this was the
0: late
1: 90s? uh, Actually, early 2000s. So we were getting companies to the top of Google to drive traffic to their websites. And my brother had done a job to get Angus and Robertson to the top of Google. And back in those days, in the early 2000s, they outsourced their website and all of their fulfillment to a company in Sydney who did it for them. And this company actually managed 80 bookstores' websites. And so a meeting was set up at Christmas of 2003 to pitch the idea to this company, hey, remember the good job we did with Angus and Robertson getting them to the top of Google? Why don't you introduce us to all your other clients and we'll get them to the top of Google so you guys can make more money? And the owner of the company said, nah, not interested. I said, you're not interested in making more money? He said, look, our job is to manage bookstore websites and fulfill those orders. That's what we do. I said, well, how does, how does it all work? And they said, look, we've built a platform. You give us the name of your shop. And then within 10 minutes, there'll be a website up and running with a million books on there. And if but it's
0: just the name of that shop.
1: Yeah, well, there was, mm. you know, they had a system where they had 80 stores yeah. that they were kind of like a subdomain, um, for those that know what that means, of all those stores. And so I said, uh, well, that sounds interesting. And the guy said, yeah, I know, but no internet-only business has made anything out of it. It's been off the back of a traditional store. They're the ones that are successful. So I went away from that meeting with my brother and I said to him, you know what, I wouldn't mind giving that book thing a bit of a go. So we were going back to our little 60-square-meter office in North Sydney and and that was of your where,
0: internet marketing company. That's
1: right. And so they were the origins. So there was no
0: like, oh, I've seen a what, gap in the market. what was that book thing? What was giving it a go? What were you going to give a go? I
1: was just going to use that company to have a site, sell books on our behalf, and in the background maybe we'd make some passive income. So- it, whatever commission we could earn, um, that would be a nice little money earner while we had our online marketing business. And so it was that kind of idea. I came up with the name Booktopia. I was in the national parks of... New South Wales on a really hot summer's day on a camping trip and the insects were screaming at the top of their lungs and I turned to the person I was with and I said, oh my God, it's like that kid's movie Ants where the insects talk about this place called Insectopia. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, Booktopia, that'd be a good name. And of course, back in those days in 2003, we were all still on dial-up modems. So, I couldn't just go into my phone and go, I wonder if that's available. had to wait a whole week till the camping trip was over to park in front of the house, run inside, turn on the computer. Yes, it's available. And okay, we we bought the URL and, and registered to the business and told that company in Sydney that we wanted to do an online bookstore too called Booktopia. And sure enough, within 10 minutes, there was a website with Booktopia's name up the top. And American So the other there. company
0: that had rejected your offer to do it, they built no, you a little so website. No, they rejected
1: the idea of us doing more internet marketing projects for their clients. They did you a a website. Yeah, that was their thing. Their thing was give us the name of a store and then we'll get a website up and running. And if you sell anything, so collectively, that company was doing really nicely because they had 80 bookstores. Well, now with us, 81. And they would be the back end for all these book businesses. And so we use them to get going.
0: But was there a specific thought, Tony, do you think about, Books. You'd run this internet marketing company. You were still running it to get anyone to the top of a Google list, any company to the top of a Google list. What made you sort of hone in on books? Were you a book lover?
1: No, I was not. My mum was. She loved books. She read every day. Uh, She passed away in 2015, but she was a huge book lover. Only found out many years after we had started that she always wanted to have a bookstore when she was little. So it was odd that her kids ended up with one, uh, the biggest. But, no, no, I was not a book I was not a book reader.
0: Not a book reader.: I would read on
1: holidays when I stopped and could settle and kind of focus on reading, but mostly um, So
0: books weren't a great passion for you. So I'm trying to find out if there was just a little moment when you thought books, not clothes, not electronics, came
1: later, that came later. Because what happened was, once I started the company with this other company and we got the site up and running, my brother who handled the finances said, look, you can work on Booktopia. It's got to be outside of ours because we've got all this consulting work and I'm giving you a budget of $10 per day to start the company. Wow. He's very generous, my brother. <laughs> and so because of that initiation, that kind of commencement, the one thing I did do which got me more and you know, I started to realize, it's kind of like in in life or in business, Test, examine the results, modify your behavior, and move on. And so I didn't use my Google Ads, which I was an expert in, to go for search terms like books or bookshop or bookstore because I actually uh, would waste all the 10 bucks in the first hour and not make any sales. So I started writing ads in the beginning for authors and titles of books to send them deep into our site. So that they had already used Google to do a search. I then had written an ad relating to that author or to that book. So when they clicked on it, I had sent them deep into the site where those books were. And that's why it took me three days to sell my first book. Total sales for the day was one book. And by the end of the month, I had sold $2,000. Even by the first month, there was no inkling or indication that we were onto something. But by the fourth month, I was up to $30,000 a month. And by the end of the year, $100,000 a month. So all all that work from 9pm till 2am every night working on my Google ads, it it was kind of like you do something and you're getting tremendous results. So all the, and we obviously increased our spending with Google, but I was just pouring all that profit that we were making back into our Google ads. So it kept getting bigger and bigger. And that's why after three years, when we were at $2 million in revenue, we thought, hey, someone might want to buy our our bookshop. But before Booktopia and before our internet marketing business, we had an internet software company. And before that internet software company, which did chat software for the internet, we had a a recruitment company for the computing industry, which is my first company that I started in 1996.
0: Was a recruitment company for?
1: IT people. IT. I started in the front room of my house. I got my computer on that first day. My IT guy went home and I turned on the computer and I saw there was a thing called a browser. So I clicked on it. You could do a search. So I did jobs in Australia and I came a website that advertised IT jobs and I rang them. And it was the time in Australian recruitment history where Rupert Murdoch, owned the Australian on a Tuesday's Australian. It was like a 64-page lift out where all the recruitment agencies advertised their jobs. And my company, Computer Power, that I worked for would spend $10,000 a week advertising their IT jobs to attract candidates. And this company, this internet job site, charged $100 a week instead of $10,000 a week. And I didn't have any money to start my company. So I basically put the eight jobs that my previous client said, you can keep looking for me when you start your own company, up on the internet. And the next morning I turned on my computer in my inbox, there was these resumes being emailed to me. And I looked at my inbox and I said, that is the future of recruitment. So I went out and told people in the mid nineties, I'm an internet recruitment agency. And they said, what? No, they said, what's the internet? (laughs) They asked, what's the internet? And so I had to explain the internet before I could talk about my recruitment services. So I've now, it's 2021. So I've actually been in internet businesses now for 25 years. So the internet recruitment company, took off. I convinced my brother and brother-in-law to join me and my sister a bit later. And my brother-in-law was an IBM software engineer. So we started to build all this software for the internet, chat software. So when a candidate was on our website, we could chat to them rather than running out on their mobile phone to talk about a job. And that's then when we sold our recruitment company to a company listed on the ASX to then focus on our chat software. But there was a big dot-com crash in the early 2000s. Just
0: before you get onto the dot-com crash. So, in 1995, you had an internet recruitment company. 96, yeah. 96, because the internet was still incredibly new then.
1: Mm. Of course, Amazon didn't list on the New York Stock Exchange until a couple of years later. So they were still- They, they had, started- had
0: started in 95, hadn't no, they? No, 93, yeah. 93, okay. Mm, yeah. Which was really probably the beginnings of commercialising the mm, internet. Correct. It was only just coming out of academia really then correct. and the military. And,
1: but keep in mind also we forget though what it was like to be on a dial-up modem. It was very slow, so we were fortuitous. We didn't realise it at the time, but broadband came in around the same time that Booktopia started, and so the issue that uh, most websites had was how heavy is your site in terms of you know the number of Ks, you know the the size of the site to load. Oh, it's loading too slow. People will abandon you. So, so that all went away because people could go onto any website and get a lot of lot more graphics and data and information to kind of transact with a customer.
0: So you weren't in Booktopia when the dot-com crash happened, mm. but did you feel like you wanted to sell out of that one of those internet companies to fund something else? Was that the idea? Yeah, that's
1: right. So we sold the recruitment company because the chat software was where we we're going to make our fortune. The internet was blossoming. I mean, the dot-com boom yeah, was incredible. Was the, Nasda- the NASDAQ got to 5,000 points and then dropped to 1,600 when the when the crash hit. It was, it was massive. And so uh, we really wanted to focus on that. And, and um, then what happened was, having sold the recruitment company, a month later the crash happened. At that stage, nobody really wanted to talk about the internet. Everyone was, you know, they had their fingers burned and, and so forth. Down. And so no one wanted to talk about chat software. And we weren't able to pay ourselves a salary. Had young families, and it was really difficult times. And it was at that time I asked a web designer in my desperation, "How do you get to the top of Google?" Because Google had been going for a few years and it was getting more and more popular. And if we were at the top of Google for life help or chat software. Maybe we make a few more sales. And it was through that question that then got us to the top of Google, which then put me on a, uh, a still, we were still trying to get people to use our chat software. But I, I spoke to a lady about getting her to use chat software on, a, on her website. And she said, I love to chat to people. I just need more people coming to my site. Yeah. Uh, well, I can get you to the top of Google. And I did a project. How did
0: you get people to the top of Google?
1: Well, search engine optimization, we had learned that art through that conversation that I had with that web designer. But then we started to really pursue, and it was in the earlier days, so it's much easier than now, to, you know, what have you got to do to get to the top of Google? And luckily, because we had pivoted from being this failing chat software company into an internet marketing business, we actually used our clients you know, to learn the craft. And we worked really hard from daybreak to midnight every night just trying to learn how do you drive traffic and and we had a mix of seo versus google adword and yahoo adword click management and we survived and
0: then thrived how badly did the Dot com bust affect you? You said, you know, you couldn't pay yourself wages. Did you get to the point where you thought, we've got to give this up and go and get a proper job?
1: We were sitting around the table, my brother and brother in law, and I. Was, at one point, we said, maybe we need to get a job and just see this thing through so then we can pick up the chat software in six months to a year or so. That was right at that time. But I'd had that conversation with that woman about her website and put in a proposal for $500 and did the job. And she was very happy. And then we were so so desperate and in such dire straits. I was talking to the largest car rental company in New Zealand about getting them to use chat software and a similar conversation occurred. How, how do you get, you know, So, sorry,
0: just for our listeners, chat software is where a bot speaks back to you on the computer. Not a bot. No, not back the A in real this, person. A real person. This was back then, right. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, there was, but a, it's all type written on your computer yeah, screen. Right. So yeah, through back your and website, you it's could real actually,
1: time. you could engage with your customers real time. Yeah, our our system that we had built was using their IBM software platform at the time called Same Time through the Lotus suite of software, and that was completely secure and encrypted, which meant that credit unions and banks and other companies were interested in it because of its encryption capabilities. So. It, I was talking to this guy about the largest independent car rental company in New Zealand about getting them to use our chat software. And in a similar conversation, nah, we need more traffic. Uh, I can get you to the top of Google. Give me a proposal. So I put one in for $18,000 instead of $500. Spoke to the guy for an hour on the phone about all the things we're going to do to drive traffic, improve his business, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the hour, he said, all right, let's do it. I put down the phone, I turned to my family. I said, man, we're in big trouble now. We have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) But from daybreak to midnight, we just desperately learned the art of driving traffic. And the thing was, is there were other SEO companies at that time, but they were going after the big end of town. They were going after the banks and the insurance companies. We just stuck to small to medium-sized enterprise, smaller projects, entrepreneurs like us, so we could talk their language and we just did lots and lots. So, we didn't take too long to quickly morph from failing to then, and quickly getting some money through.
0: So, when Booktopia started, you had to do your day job. Um, you were given $10 a day budget to run Booktopia mm. at night. How did you do that? Pepsi Max. <laughs> that kept you going, the yeah, caffeine always, in that? <laughs> I
1: always say that Pepsi Max got Booktopia off the ground, yeah. A bottle of Pepsi Max every night just to be... But what happened was there was getting obsessive. I don't know whether um, it's like anything else when you get onto something and you feel like, oh my God, everything that I'm doing or a lot of this, not everything worked. I was learning a lot. So a lot in the end, what I was, uh, and we did SEO for another five years or internet marketing for another five years after I started Booktopia. So there was a lot of things that I was trying of my own money that I could then take to my clients and go, look, that's actually not going to work. This is working. So I, I was getting exposed to a lot of opportunities and a lot of things that We're working and when you put a dollar down and you're getting $10 of revenue, you kind of get, I won't say obsessed, but it's just like, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. So because it was growing, it went from zero to $2 million in revenue within a few years. That's
0: extraordinary. I mean, so you had cash flow. You were never, even in those early days, super strapped for money.
1: No, because the other company was managing the site and fulfilling the orders. It was when we went out on our own. But you had to pay them. No, they paid everything. We just got a commission check at the end of every month. And be able to pay our Google ads. Ah, I see.
0: Okay. So at first, you're working on commission Mm, for the first three years. Right. So then, how did it change? What was the step change? Funnily
1: enough, I went to the 2006 annual booksellers associate, the Australian Booksellers Association annual conference, and it was up in Kingscliff. And I said to my brother and brother in law, you know, we're getting books, this is really growing. I should learn more. And so off I went to this conference and I sat there listening to what they were talking about, going, these guys have no idea about the opportunity or what's going on. And I came back and I said, we've got to go out on our own. We've got to build our own site and we have to separate ourselves from the company that was doing all of the fulfilment for us. And because of our background in software, we felt comfortable we could build our own site and we
0: did that. We took a little 450 square metre warehouse in Artamen. But at this stage, are you starting to buy stock? Are you buying books then to resell them, so you're having to store them somewhere, distribute them?
1: No. In the beginning, what we did in 2007 when we went out on our own, we didn't hold any stock. We just simply took an order yeah, and then placed the order with the supplier, and they had never heard of us before because all our orders were going through this other company up until then, and we had basic terms, basic discounts, and books would come in finally, and we would ship them out. and. Customers were really pissed off with us. We didn't have any systems. I remember the, the customer contact system was our inbox. So we had folders, which uh, one of them was WMB, which is where's my book. And then there was WMBB, which is where's my bloody book. Basically, that was, you know, when we started to get more than one email from the customer, they got moved down to that folder. So, what would happen is we'd take three, four, five, six, eight weeks to get a book to a customer. And then… You were lucky
0: any of them came back.
1: I know. I know. We were. It was the early days. So, probably… They were forgiving. um, Probably not. (laughs) But… What happened was there was this one book. The wife of Jerry Seinfeld had written a book called Deceptively Delicious, Jessica Seinfeld. And America had sold out of its 300,000 copies. And HarperCollins in Australia had 200 copies left. So I said to my brother and brother-in-law, we should buy them all. You know, we're selling them. And so we basically ordered... All of the stock that was left at the HarperCollins warehouse, it arrived. And so this was about almost a year, about 10 or 11 months after we'd gone out on our own. And when an order would come through the site, we would just go through to the warehouse, grab one of those books and ship it. And the feedback on those books was, wow, what great service. Wow, you guys are really fast. And I said to the others, because we were getting abused by most, you know, most of the other, you know, I should have bought from Amazon. You guys suck. You're too slow. To this book was quite stark the difference in feedback. And so I said to my brother and brother in law, it's like to kill a mockingbird is sold every single month for 50 years. Why are we ordering it in? We should have copies. What else is there? How to win friends and influence people, power of positive thinking, thinking very So rich. all those
0: very famous books Pirateal that people classics, love to come Harry back Potter, to. Harry
1: Potter, Dr. Zeus. So our little warehouse, as you were asking before, then started to fill up. And so that's when things started to change. When we started to realize by holding stock made a huge difference, and no one and else you was could really deliver doing that.
0: very speedily and That's give right. real customer service.
1: That's right. I mean, we already knew that they were going to buy it, so why not stock it? It was just, and as we, we were growing, we could kind of fund that. But because we were self funded out of the 10 bucks, there was not a lot of cash. Everything needed to be very carefully spent yeah. in all the right areas. Well, I guess buying stock eats up a lot of your cash flow. It did, except that the algorithms that I wrote for the business meant that we were bottoming out and having zero on a lot of the stock that we were selling, but we had already reordered it. So either we had it and it went out quickly or it was coming in and when it arrived, it went straight out. And so it was kind of, the algorithms were written to slowly expand our stock position. When you buy stock, uh, you get 30 days to pay for it with the publishers by the end of the month. We quite often sold it by the time that we had to pay the supplier. So by using that model, we were able to buy with a probability that we were going to sell it.
0: Yeah, before you had to pay the bill to the supplier. That's right. So why why not do that? Now, all through this time, though, Amazon is this big 100-pound gorilla. 800-pound. Globally. (laughs) Sorry, 800-pound gorilla. Yeah. How did they affect you? Did you care about them? Did you ever worry that they could crush you if they wanted to? Um,
1: I'll answer it in this way, which is quite helpful for others who are listening, I think, in terms of my mindset about how I think about these things. So when I was much younger, more than 30 years ago, I was an athlete, I, don't, I know I don't look like that today, but I was i was actually a decathlete. And the decathlon is the event in athletics where you go and you're actually not good at anything and you just do them all. <laughs> my best event was the 100 meters. And as a decathlete, I ran the 111 flat. Now, that's quick for a decathlete, yeah. but it's not that great yeah. if you're a sprinter. And my sprint coach would say to me, if you want to slow down, just look to the left and look to the right and see where the others are. But if you want to go fast, pick a point down the end of the runway and build peripheral vision so you know where everyone else is. Now, that- Meaning you block out the competition that, and just look straight ahead. Not that you block them out. is you just got awareness of where everyone else is as you're running your race. And that kind of mindset is how I've taken to Booktopia. So when we started, there were others that were at 5 million, we were at 10 or 8, and we're at 220 million, and our number two online retailer is 20 million. So I I can assure you that that kind of focus and thinking and not worrying about what Amazon is doing or what the others are doing gets you to here. It's a very fundamental, important thing for others to be aware of. I know so many others that I'm watching what the competitors are doing, our pricing, whatever. I never did that.
0: So Amazon being able to crush you never crossed your mind?
1: They're in America. They gave us a gift. So they didn't come to Australia until 2017. Yeah. They announced that they were coming in 2016. That was a, the exact week that we were looking to try an IPO. And all the fund managers said, well, they're going to annihilate you. That was our first attempt. And uh, we were turning over 80. And in the meantime, we've got to 220 million in revenue. So the lucky thing, they gave us the grace of not coming to Australia uh, they had other countries and continents that were much bigger than, than Australia. But by the time they came to Australia, books is, is not a priority for them anymore. Yeah. They're focused on many more things. And to be fair, they're actually more of a tech company now than they are a product company. Uh, if you go to uh, Amazon, quite often it'll be someone else selling the book to somebody else. And in the last few years, they've created this buy box. In the old days, for those that have been buying from Amazon will remember there was a long list of resellers and themselves who you could buy from. And now they've removed that with a little message underneath the buy box, which is other sellers here. Quite often, it's not Amazon selling the book. Yeah. And they're a tech company.
0: Do you consider yourself a book product company or a tech company?
1: Um, we're, We're very focused on our vertical. So, I see us in the book industry. Using all of those things, it's kind of like oh, I have a personal interest in World War I history, and Sir John Monash was absolutely incredible in terms of a general, but he didn't come from the armed forces. And so when tanks – airplanes, communication. He just used all of the technology available to him at that time. And that's why he was instrumental in finishing the war in 1918 and for it not going on to 1919. In a similar way, I think of us like that. It's like, well, these are the things that are available. I'm a three-dimensional thinker. So I think outside the cube. A lot of the people in the book industry were, the world is flat. This is the way it was. This is the way it always is. So from my viewpoint, I saw a lot of the landscape, and v- from very different positions and very different angles, so I just saw things differently. So, yes, technology is part of it, but at the same time, pro- and probably what happened with Jeff Bezos as well is that there was just a whole new landscape, a whole new wave of conducting business that had come through that nobody else had cottoned onto.
0: In the beginning, was Booktopia a big vision for you? Or because it was a side hustle in the beginning, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So, was it a big vision or just a little vision? We'll just see how we go. One step led to another. Um, I'm very horizon point
1: driven. So, when we were uh, turning over 2 million, my goal was to get to 10 million. 10 million, get to 20. I remember, for example, when we were turning over 20 million and our website was pretty crappy and it was very much due for an upgrade. One of the mums at uh, my son's primary school was a web designer. And I gave her the brief of giving us the new look and feel for our site, which is a lot of what is still there today. So 20 million. So that would have been. Uh, so that's
0: 20 million worth of books you're selling.
1: Um, so 2012 was around that time. Um, and it was well. That's well, still and, pretty extraordinary. Yes, it was. Given it only
0: started, what, a half a dozen years, uh, a bit eight more years before. before.
1: Yeah. But the brief that I gave her was very, was very simple. I said, when someone comes to our website and they look at it for the very first time and you ask them the question, how much revenue do you reckon they're making? The answer that must be $100 million. That's the brief.
0: So so you wanted to look big and classy and well-organized. Yeah, so well-organized and- point
1: driven. So our goal was to get to $100 million in revenue. So what would the website look like if you were turning over that? Because if someone thinks you're turning over $100 million, they probably want to hand over cash.
0: It's a really interesting philosophy. How did you come to that view? It just felt
1: logically right. To be fair, I don't like. Once we got to a hundred million, uh, I remember my uh, deputy CEO, uh, who's also our CTO and much younger than me, twenty years younger, and has been with us since two thousand and eight, so quite a long time. And once we got to a hundred million, he said, "Tony, it really feels like you've either checked out or you're just cruising." And I said, "Hmm, yeah, I think you're right." And I realised. We had hit the 100 million and I had not reset to go for 200 million. And as soon as he had said that, I had the chance to reflect on that. It was just like, yeah, gears kicking again and off we go to 200 million. And the great thing about that for me, this is important, is that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. So if you set a goal of 200 million, or right now going from 200 to 300 million, the question is, that it's not like, oh my God, that's really, that seems like too much or that's impossible, right? It's like, okay, what would we have to have in place to be at 300 million? How much stock would we have? What sort of traffic would we be getting? What sort of partnerships maybe we have? Maybe there's some acquisitions. So by doing that, if you've got a curious mind, then you will start to explore how and what might need to be put in place. Not so much thinking, worrying about whether it's too much or too, too little. Like I, I know we're going to get to five hundred million. I don't know when. Now the, the stock market wants to know when, but I know we're going to get there. But I, right now, I focus on three hundred.
0: Yeah. When you when did you get to one hundred million in revenue? Can you remember?
1: Yeah. When? So that was the year after we tried to list a so twenty seventeen.
0: Twenty seventeen. Can you remember that feeling? Of getting there. You're saying at some point after your younger colleague said, uh, You're just cruising, mate, but can you remember what it felt like to get to 100 million? Did you feel pride? Did you feel, Wow, you know, we're the best? Or did you think onwards and upwards? Onwards and upwards. And so
1: we listed in uh, December of 2020, five, six months ago. And at the ASX, I explained to everyone, and it's very similar to the question that you asked about 100 million to also the IPO. It felt like to me, the IPO felt like being in the Tour de France, you're on the 10th stage, and you've just gone through the 40Ks to go banner and there's another 40 k's to go, and it's at the top of a mountain. And once you get there, there's another 11 stages to go before you get to the Champs-Élysées where you drink champagne at 20 k's an hour, hugging your mates, and you make it to the finish line. So the IPO, or 100 million or 200 million, feels very much like that. So you're on track, you're doing what you're supposed to do, you've got critical mass, so that's really, really important to understand. And
0: I But don't, you're not there yet, and you could come off the bike.
1: Yeah. It's like... I don't celebrate the highs, but I also don't feel the lows. So I, what I try and do, as a, and I know this is a podcast, so I'll do my best to describe it, but a friend of mine, she's Italian great entrepreneur, incredible entrepreneur. But when she wins an award, she parties like it's crazy. Like, so she's up high. When something doesn't work out the way that she wants, she crashes, right? And she feels low. And then something else, she has a great week or a new big deal. And then someone leaves, right? And she, through time, like, just imagine the, you know, the graph going up and down, right? Up and down. Oh my God, it's exhausting. For me, I clip the highs, and I also clip the lows. So when something doesn't work out or someone resigns or, okay, all right, bring it on. Because But the, the distance that I'm traveling uh, through, through the year, I'm, I'm not wasting my energy. When I hit the hay at night, I just go to sleep. People ask me, "Well, what keeps you up at night? Nothing.
0: I just go to sleep. I don't worry about those things. When you decided to start to do everything yourself in-house and become, I guess, a real business that did it all, was that the real step change to catapulting you to the next level of revenue and growth? And It was probably more uh, when
1: we, not when we started to do things in-house, it was more when we moved from Lane Cove to Homebush and we went from two 2,000 square meter little warehouses to Lidcombe to the 10,000 square meters out near the Olympic Park. Because that's when we were going from one packing machine to lots of automation and more packing machines and holding more stock. And then we added another 4,000 square meters next door when IBM moved out of the unit next to us. And so it was probably then when we were turning over 40 million, that was when we said, all right, this is when we start to transition to get to 100 million plus.
0: If you read a lot of the media stories, if you listen to you speaking, the Booktopia journey, you know, does seem to be fairly seamless. It was constantly growing. You took over a couple of competitors that people would know, the name Angus and Robertson and Bookworld. Has it all been smooth sailing in reality? It's never smooth sailing. I mean,
1: it from a distance, I think, yes, you'd say, oh, look at the growth, look at all those things. But, you know, on the battlefield day to day, There's always something being coming out of left field that would throw a spanner in the works or an obstacle that you need to overcome. Everything is happening all the time. It's not like some beautiful, easy glide like the queen, you know, going down Pall Mall, waving to the masses and, and getting to the Puckingham Palace and going, oh, isn't that all lovely? It is not like that at all. It's a race. It's the hounds and the, the horses and the hooves and it's, everything's
0: happening at a, at a million miles an hour. I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment, but just about the funding, you virtually bootstrapped it for a long time, but mm-hmm. you, you said you did try and do a capital raising. It didn't work. Why not? So the
1: first capital raise was trying to IPO in 2016. And we had done a lot of work getting ready, had done the rounds. And the week that we were going to the market to firm out the price and do the final management roadshow, Amazon announced they were coming to Australia. Now that was we were at 80 million in revenue. So we were a lot smaller. To remind people though, for those that watch the markets, Temple and Webster were trading at $0.15. Cents. They're now at $10. Kogan had flatlined six months earlier since they had listed. Nothing had happened with their share price. Sir Stitch was going off the market. Red Bubble had gone down. And so it was like going down to Bondi Beach on a midwinter's day to sell ice creams with a southerly coming in from the Antarctic and it was like eight degrees. You
0: also tried crowdfunding
1: in 2018. Before that, though, which you wouldn't be aware of, we engaged a company out of Seattle to take Booktopia to the market and see if there was interest from a trade sale. So someone might want to buy us. And it was about 120 companies in Australia or around the world that were approached. None Mm -hmm. of them were interested. So, okay, fair enough. So then, because I knew the guys from Equitize who were doing crowdfunding, I thought, well, why don't we just go to our customers? Because our customers were saying to us during the IPO, it's really annoying that you didn't list because I wanted to buy shares in you guys. And so I thought, well, why don't I just use crowdfunding and, and raise capital? Now, it is reported in the media that that failed. It's actually not true. We were going to get uh, the three million that we needed and wanted, but during the process, there's a company called Wholesale Investor, and I went on a roadshow in Singapore, Brisbane, and Sydney. And from those events, there was interest from bigger investors who said, "Hold on, hold on, I'm interested in investing in you." So it was around the same time we were doing the crowdfunding. So we paused it. We actually stopped doing the crowdfunding because there was I could tell that there was an appetite there to bring on a larger investor. And so not long after that. I came to the conclusion that I needed someone who spoke the capital markets language and bring them inside the tent. And through meeting someone at the Wholesale Investor events, he introduced me to somebody, a guy called Mark Payton, and he came in-house and could see what was missing as far as our pack, as far as our financial modeling and other things that were required. And after working with us for three to four months, he was ready to go to the market. And then by January of 2020, we were able to do our first raise of $8 million. So it was not a failed crowdfund. It was one that kind of stirred the pot, got things moving, got us into action, and we ended up doing that capital raise.
0: In that growth and sort of scale up years, that must have been fairly rapid. How did you actually manage that internally? Did you feel in yourself you're a good manager in being able to get people to do what you need to do, bring on, uh, grow your teams, that sort of thing?
1: As a recruiter for 14 years, I knew that was one of my strengths. I never felt when I was starting my first recruitment company that I was actually a good leader because I'd never led before. So my leadership style has developed over the years. I'm very good at attracting talent. I'm very good at keeping that talent. But more importantly, when someone important resigns, my reaction is, wow, where are you going next? Because I was a recruiter. I pinch people from companies and put them in other companies. So there's no... So the, you never took it personally or got No, nasty. I was excited that they came into Booktopia, they learned skills and they were able to be of more value to themselves to go somewhere else. Yeah. And then it only creates a vacuum for someone else to come in and then be on the journey. The truth is it's, they're not joining Booktopia because of Tony Nash. They're joining Booktopia because of Booktopia. It's much bigger than me.
0: The fundraising that you felt you needed to do, and you've talked a little bit about having to move warehouses to get bigger and bigger and use innovation, use technology. How important is innovation to Booktopia's story?
1: Innovation is very important and to continue to grow because you can't do it by throwing more people at it. You get diseconomies of scale. You simply need to make sure that you're investing in the tech, the automation, to ensure that the people that you have there can do more with the time that they have to meet the increasing customer demand. There's no way of doing it otherwise. Uh, maybe if you're in a country where labor is really, really cheap and almost to the point of you know bordering on just abuse, and perhaps those countries can do it, uh, but in Australia, you need to invest in automation.
0: And what are you investing in automation? Is it AI? Is it robots in the warehouse? Uh, Is it, you know, streamlined, improved platforms and software?
1: Initially, it was more conveyor belts and packing machines and scanning equipment. The first rounds of investment from 2014 through to 2018, 2019, 2018. So it was about, initially it was $5 million of investment. Because it's hard
0: for people to imagine what these big warehouses are like. I mean, I think a lot of us haven't been inside them. We don't know how you're grabbing books from shelves that might be, you know, what, 40 metres high or something.
1: Uh, Not 40. Um, The ceilings are normally around 12 to 13. Oh, okay. Mostly it's – and when you see photos of Amazon's warehouse, um, people picking books, you'll see there's actually people picking books. There's not a lot of robotics around that, and mainly because the book is like an egg. In fact, it's even more fragile than an egg because an egg comes in a carton. So a book is – is doesn't come with any protective box, or like you might get a phone or a, or mm. other, you know, something that you bought online. The book actually is on its own. So, therefore, it needs to be handled in a certain way to ensure that it gets to the customer in a pristine condition as if they were in a shop. In fact, quite often I go into shops and there's a lot of dirty books on the shelves as the customer then has to decide whether they want to buy something that is a bit shelf worn. So, the automation mostly was about getting the books to the shelves so people could put them into stock or getting them picked and then getting over to the packing area.
0: How important is customer to you? I mean, it sounds so common sense, but. Super important. In fact, when I said earlier that the quality of your
1: life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask, the one question we've asked every single day for over 17 years, what do our customers want? And by going on that journey of discovery to find out what they really want, we end up here, and it was really surprising to me how no one was asking that in the book industry. On the other side, we we decide what books they want to have. We decide what books are going to be on the shelves. Um, there was just so much not entitlement, but just so much kind of old school that they weren't really focusing. We just we stock books like on how to raise chickens or taught law or um, you know some classics that. Nobody else, lots of romance, you know, with bare chested men and kilts in the, the Scottish Highlands. No bookstore owners were putting those in their bookshops because they would never read that and couldn't passionately, you know, hand on heart go, this is a great book. We were selling tons of that stuff. And so by focusing on the customer. And it was really amazing to me how no one else was really doing that in the book industry. I was invited to go to and sit on the book industry strategy group, maybe it was probably almost 10 years ago. And they rang me up and they said, We'd really love you to be on on this strategy group, you know, online bookstore. And I said, no, 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 you don't want me. I'm going to piss people off. And I hung up. And anyway, about half an hour later, the guy ran, running the whole thing rang me and he said, look, I hear you don't want to be on there, but could you just hear me out? I said, sure, can I go for it. And he goes, look, we've got authors, we've got literary agents, we've got distributors and publishers and printers and big bookstores and little bookstores. And so it'd be really great to have an online bookstore. And I said, has the most important group have all been invited to sit on this strategy group? No, they haven't the readers. That's embarrassing. That is hugely embarrassing. And how come is Booktopia is the biggest book retailer in Australia today? Is because all we do is focus on what the customers want.
0: In this journey, which I've said before, if you just read the media, it looks relatively seamless, but you said it, it never is. Did you ever actually come close to falling over? No.
1: But you're sailing to the wind. You've got your your know, body's right out on, on the trapeze, and you're, you're stopping, hoping that you're not going to capsize. This is one of the lessons that I had from doing the IPO the first time around, is that we expected to get it away, and it didn't happen. And the cost with our accountants, with our lawyers, with everyone else, when it didn't happen, which the capital raise was going to cover, was a few million bucks, and and so we had to pay them, and we had to stretch that out over a year, and that money came out of the proceeds of our business, which we would normally be using to grow our company. So quite often our suppliers were being pushed to the very limit in terms of the number of days it was taking for us to pay them, which then put us on stop, which meant that we had to accumulate more sales so we could pay them and then slowly eke our way out of that trough. And that's when I realised the next time we do a capital raise, we'll have the money set aside to do the raise without impacting business.
0: And the reason... You need to do a capital raise, is to grow, is to invest in technology. Why do you go through the pain? We never needed it. So why, why go through that pain?
1: To get to, get to $150 million in revenue off a $10 note, and then to get to a billion, we didn't need it. But it gets you there faster. The truth is for me, and being a retailer, when you're a listed company, people are talking about you all the time. That's free media, all the time. You're yeah, listed- but they can
0: be saying negative things. You can have short sellers on your back. Yeah. You can have people saying, oh, why did Tony sell one and a half million shares, which, you know, they obviously has been day. in the media recently. Yes, yes, Why did the founder sell out? That's always a, a difficult one for founders to do hmm. because the market says, oh, he's selling out, you know.
1: To me, that's it's like being on the field, playing the game. And the crowd, you know, ref, you know, swearing. Those people are just like the – they're just like being in the crowd and just want to scream at it. Quite often a lot of those journalists – and I read about me and about Booktopia and about others. It almost comes across like they got a chip on their shoulder that those guys, you know, they're really, really wealthy and they're pissed off that they're really wealthy and as a journalist they're not. It's how it comes across. It's quite – it's it's really – but
0: and a- yet it's a difficult one because, of course, founders, I would have thought, should be able to take some of their profit off the table at some point. But I can see as an investor through the share market, you want to know that the founders got skin in the game. What,
1: what was in the pre- that press release, which didn't make it in one of those articles which you're referring to, is that, um, yes, I did sell 1.5 million shares. I was not allowed to sell any at the IPO, whereas my brother and brother-in-law, because they weren't in – Strategic positions could. And my brother is actually, had actually retired from the business. So I wasn't allowed to sell anything. And more importantly, my shares went from 24.4 million shares down to 22.9 million shares. Oh, so he's still the major shareholder. And By he, a long way. Yeah. And he's, and he's, um, and so none of that made yeah. that article. Yeah.
0: Um, that time when you talked about coming close to failure with the costs of the first IPO that didn't go ahead, has failure been Close at other times.
1: It's not not that it would have been failure. That that time was not failure. It's just a you know a bit financial tightrope. Right. Yeah, it's just a, a bit of a squeeze through to get to the other side. There was always ways of scaling back. We always we had so many levers that we could have pulled. We could have made people redundant. We didn't. We could have done lots of other things to minimise costs, but we didn't. We just continued to just tighten everything and then just get through to the other side.
0: I think that's a great time that we should take a little break and we'll be back with part two shortly. Tony Nash, thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed part one of my chat with Tony Nash. In part two, Tony Nash reveals how his unorthodox path to success, including almost failing his HSC and being diagnosed with a medical condition often thought to hold people back, how all that was actually his superpower and why he reckons it's crucial to control the mental highs as well as lows in business to have staying power. That's next week. I hope you enjoyed Build It Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.